This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu on Books. Our guest today is Ghazala Wahab. whose recently released book Born a Muslim Some Truths About Islam in India has created quite a stir particularly in our present times when our reputation as a secular state is getting trampled in contemporary politics the debates and discussions around Hindus and Muslims are getting vitriolic and polarized and at the same time becoming more relevant Ghazala who is the executive editor of the Force News magazine says as a journalist her writings have always been about national security terrorism and insurgency refugees and displaced people islam is her faith and was never her work of writing but this book which is her solo was born out of her personal experiences and perhaps as a necessity in the india we live in today where hate is getting normalized in some parts of the country if a muslim tenant is rejected somewhere else a muslim delivery boy is not accepted how did we get into such a situation and is there a hope of getting out ever ghazala demystifies it all in her book and is here with us to share her thoughts a very warm welcome to you ghazala thank you so much shoma so let me start directly by asking one simple question like do you think that islam is more misunderstood than ever before in this new india now and why i'm asking this is because you know generally the understanding of islam in the context of indian history has always been little complicated and even twisted if i may say so i agree with the last sentence that you have said our understanding is twisted and i this is the reason why i disagree with the first part which is uh, that it is misunderstood i think it was never misunderstood in india traditionally but in the last century there was a deliberate attempt to mislead and misinterpret islam so that they, it could be vilified for a common person this is a deliberate thing that has happened in the uh, last one century so to say that it is mis- misunderstood today uh, is not entirely correct people misunderstand it because they have chosen not to understand it as their ancestors probably did uh, as i have written in the book uh, the growth of islam in india it's spread throughout the country and its equation with the people uh, native people of india who were already here and were pursuing various religions hinduism being one of them it was very organic it happened as a very in a very natural wa- manner there was nothing which was uh, artificial of uh, in this uh, uh, development or in this spread of islam uh, in india though there were some element of force involved in certain parts of the country but my position and my understanding is that you cannot force a person to change uh, that person's religion a person under, under duress can pretend to be somebody else but uh, religion is such a intrinsic part of your personality you know your entire being up for a religious person your entire being hinges on your faith 
because your afterlife depends on your faith so if somebody forces you to change your faith how can you do that i mean you cannot jeopardize your afterlife because somebody is forcing you in this life so i i do not agree with this that it was entirely by sword that islam was spread and uh, because of that uh, now suddenly there's a awakening and people are you know there's a push back against islam in india as a very natural corollary of the fact that it was forced so i do not agree with this the the other thing that i feel uh, uh, i'm not talking about how islam spread right now i'm just answering the present in the present context what is happening is our uh, patience with understanding things is very limited with this preponderance of social media and uh, personal media like uh, whatsapp and um, earlier you had emails like um, you know personal email id where people would forward uh, mails to friends or you know a vast group of people all this facilitated spread of uh, uh, wrong false information and because not many people bother to verify everything they get on a forward whether it was a email forward or a whatsapp forward so they started believing uh, whatever they received and it's easy to falsify things and just attribute things to somebody i mean we see it all the time you uh, i don't know how familiar you are with poetry any verse is passed off as mirza ghalib's verse or poet gulzar actually clarified saying that 80% verses which are circulating on social media attributed to me have yeah. not been written by me right so nobody bothers yeah it is even the more dangerous part is the faster dissemination yes and the blind and faith because people do not bother to verify or check anything uh even yesterday on my housing society whatsapp group uh, a completely nonsense thing was passed as some doctor a false name was attributed to somebody and said this doctor was talking to so and so and this doctor has said this no no such doctor in, exists in no such hospital but people just keep forwarding these things without taking the responsibility of what they are forwarding Mm right so i you know like let's uh, about your book you know i found that it was you're very beautifully and carefully worded it you know there's a lot of sensitivity in it there is empathy your research on the history and evolution of islam is also very enriching then of course your personal memories uh, which is like you start your book with the first 40 45 pages they really hit you they are really horrifying then your criticism of the muslim leadership and the clergy is also very bold and scathing so when did all this you know actually start uh, like when did you start conceptualizing that you wanted to write this book and for how many years do you work on this book actually i uh, conceptualized it in a very rapid fashion i don't know how it happened so quickly but after my first book uh, which i had co-authored with my colleague uh it was a book on china it came out in 2017 so after that uh i was thinking about uh, writing a book again, uh, you know on my a solo book so i was uh, kind of uh, debating with two three subjects in my mind and i had mentioned a few subjects to my publisher and they i was not thinking that they would immediately latch onto the islam subject uh so islam was one of the subjects which i had mentioned 
even i didn't have too much of clarity about what i wanted to write but i just thought that i would write a book addressing uh, muslims and i would base it largely on my own experience and i'll tell them that look this is also a kind of islam we have in india and i my family is not a unique uh, you know it's not unique in the way it has been practicing uh, the religion uh, a vast number of muslims in india practice it the way we do i mean this is this was my understanding with all the people i used to meet and muslims that i met they were more or less like me uh, so i i that was my original idea but once we started talking about it then i decided to you know get a little bit more because uh, publishers are very difficult to please and they kept saying why do you say this what is the basis of your uh, you know writing this argument or why why are you pointing this out that led to some research so this whole process of finally getting a proposal approved itself took me about 6 months thereafter because i had to then do a lot of research i did a few preliminary interviews also only to write the proposal because i realized that um, i didn't know much uh, about the subject and i didn't know much about uh, uh, claims that i was making because things that i was saying was basically hearsay things that i had heard at home i had no uh, evidence to actually you know prove that this is how it was so that is where uh, the conceptualization took about 6 months and uh, the first draft took uh, nearly a year for me to write and then they decided that uh, the book had more potential than all of us had anticipated so then they asked me to uh, you know add some 50000 words more and uh, include uh, the present uh, i was not writing about the uh, victimization of muslims in my original manuscript it was not there because i was talking more of history and i was talking of future i had kind of jumped the present time completely i, I was i had not mentioned the communal violence or uh, love jihad or lynching or any of this but then they said no no we can't if you are doing a book then we can't overlook this aspect so you include this okay so would you be kind of do you think that you have presented your book uh, as a what should i say as an antidote to this uh, rising communalism again we come to the present times only you know because maybe the publication is at quite an appropriate time for at least all the thinking people you know who can think righteously yes and i think for that i have to thank my publishers to have the foresight to see that for a book to be relevant to its time you cannot uh, ignore the present so uh, that they asked me to do this and i did it the way i did so i think it was very very uh, opportune that it has come out at this time and it is uh, drawing people or at least uh, from the feedback that i have got it is actually compelling a lot of people to ask questions and talk about it so that's the first part of uh, starting a conversation and i think this is a very uh, i mean i'm grateful for all this that is happening uh, you know all the attention that the book is getting and the kind of response that i'm getting from the readers right because you also have talked about you know you want to address both the muslims and the non muslims and you want to build a bridge of conversation through this book and i think this book is actually fulfilling that purpose right 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really surprised that uh, I have got no backlash from any Muslim, even the conservative Muslims. Uh, you know, some of them have very politely said, yeah, I, we don't agree with uh, everything, but it, it's a very good uh, argument that you have presented. It's a very good book or things like that. So I'm, uh, the publishers also were very worried. I mean, they ran the manuscript through some religious people and were lawyers to see if uh, there are issues which could, you know, get either of us in trouble. But uh, I even I was a little cautious about the fact that uh, maybe some Muslim ulama may find elements in it because I'm not a Muslim scholar. You know, I'm not a qualified uh, a scholar of Islam who could be uh, writing on religious matters. And I have written extensively on religious matters. I have uh, written on the Quran and I have written about the Hadith. And uh, since you are not a Muslim, you wouldn't understand the importance of hadith for an average Muslim. Uh, they refer to had hadith as basically uh, a historical document of, uh, you know, Prophet's life and early years of Islam. So for a lot of Muslims, hadith is as sacred as the Quran itself. But uh, I have, you know, stuck my neck out and I have said that it should not be regarded as sacred as the Quran and anything written in the hadith should not be taken as seriously as you take the Quran. You know, there's a distinction you have to make between these two texts. So I was uh, worried that some Muslims may object to this. But uh, thankfully that, that has not happened. So this part of my audience is apparently happy. But it is just, just, it is just this environment, you know, the inclusion of the word Muslim. I think that kind of triggers all kinds of uh, emotions and uh, cautions. Yes, you're right. And I realized that a lot of people are uh, getting back at me without even having read the book. And they are talking about the strangest things, uh, which has nothing to do with, with what I have written. But uh, the very uh, fact that I am saying that, oh, look at the Muslims, they are in such a bad, a pitiable state in India. All Muslims have been victim of uh, deliberate vilification. This itself just angers a certain group of people and they start lashing out. So I suppose it's the, it's the atmosphere that we have uh, built for ourselves in the last few years where you have no patience to even bother to check what a person has said or written. You just have to immediately lash out. Right. So the, like all the events like you have also looked at, like from uh, this 1980 Muradabad, Eidgah killings, then uh, Advani's Rathiyatra, uh, followed by the riots, uh, then the demolition of Babri Masjid, to the last year's Delhi riots, uh, following the protests against the CANNRC. So each event has kind of always played into the psyche of uh, the average uh, mind of Muslims, average Muslim families, including yours. So can you can you just a little bit elaborate on how in uh, how the behavior of these law enforcing agencies, they have always added to the vulnerability of the Muslims? Uh, you know, a lot of people say that uh, even the law enforcement agencies, uh, uh, they are product of our society. I do not agree entirely with this. I think uh, more than that, uh, they are uh, they are subservient to orders that are given to them. So if you have a 
a good or a righteous leadership at the top, then everybody falls in line and obeys, you know, obey that sort of a order. But if you have a compromised leadership at the top, then uh, everybody, all the foot soldiers, they become compromised. And unfortunately, in India, uh, we have had, and I have written about this in my uh, earlier writings also, when I have written on uh, counterterrorism or when I have written on, you know, other issues. Uh, we have a concept of a few R syndrome in which uh, the government, okay, it's probably not the government, but certain elements within the government machinery or the bureaucracy, they allow the lawbreakers or the uh, rioters or the violators a margin or a cushion of a few hours to vent their anger, to do whatever they want uh, before the law enforcement agencies swing into action and you know they try and stop them. And this has happened uh, in right after right after the partition. Uh, what the reason could be behind this uh, beyond communalization, I don't know. Either are they driven by communal think, feeling or sentiment or they think that, you know, like an old saying that if the milk is on a boil, then you just let it boil over then it calms down. So is it that or I mean, what could be the logic for this? I don't know. But uh, this has happened and uh, I do not think it is entirely because they are highly communal. Maybe some element within the law enforcement agencies would be highly communal, but not all of them. See, if you have a leader, I remember I keep giving this example of um, uh, this, uh, you know, DG police of Punjab. So, and even today, uh, he has this uh, reputation of uh, being extremely upright person. So during his tenure, you you didn't hear about these extrajudicial killings or anything. I mean, things changed when Gill took took over, and though to Gill the credit of wiping out uh, the terrorism from Punjab goes, but uh, this uh, how can I forget his name? Ribeiro, Ribeiro, Ribeiro. Mm. So uh, it, it it was the same police, but it depended upon who the leadership was. So I I feel uh, to a very large extent the leadership matters. If you see even the Gujarat riots of two thousand two, uh, wherever you had good uh, leaders, you know the good uh, honourable IPS officers or non compromised IPS officers, they were able to control the mob. Wherever they did want to control the mob, they didn't. Either they came late or they stood by, or as we saw in Delhi riots uh, last year, uh, they stood by. They were not trying to control the mob for various reasons. I mean, also many videos have come out. But whenever they wanted to control the mob, they did manage to control the mob. When the attack on JNU happened, they didn't control the mob. They were standing there and videos uh, came out on social media that how the uh, people who had attacked the JNU last year, uh, they coolly walked out. Some faces were shown, and you, it, it's all in public domain. So, if you, if the law enforcement agencies want to act, they can act. So, I think everything eventually depends upon who, what, uh, sort of a leadership you have. 
when we talk about you know the fear and the confusion of an average uh, muslim uh, on the other uh, side of the spectrum if we talk look at the average hindu so their perception of radicalized islam is kind of you know a uh, majority will find is based on the partition horror or the exodus of kashmiri pandits and what happens is religion instead of uh, uh, professing peace it incites violence so what do you have to say you know where i mean how do we uh, kind of juxtapose uh, the two sides you know the irony of religion any religion is that it it is supposed to give you peace it is supposed to put some sort of order in your life uh, yet it is also capable of arousing the most violent and the most base instincts in a human being throughout history uh, uh, the call of religion has actually killed more people than any i mean okay non religious calls have also killed people but uh, from crusades to even before that when you you had the the jewish and the you know the pagans of that period they were fighting among themselves uh, uh so the religion then uh, christians and muslims were fighting and then now in india we see the hindu and muslim uh, so religion has been capable of arousing really violent uh, reactions among people but uh, as far as the hindu thinking or hindu perception of islam as a violent religion uh, is concerned uh, i think partition did partition uh, created uh, or the post partition uh, memories of people it created a fertile ground in which propaganda could be nurtured uh, see uh, even muslims uh, suffered during the partition people who were going from india to pakistan uh, a lot of manslaughter was happening even among them so the, these are memories which people have held on to uh, across communities whether it's hindus or sikhs or muslims uh, so it it created this kind of a uh, uh, you know i wouldn't say hatred but this kind of a uh, hostility uh, or i i don't know if it's really hostility also because i know a lot of people who have uh, survived uh, the violence of partition and they are not uh, hostile to the other community i mean i have uh, not only in india but even in pakistan uh, i have come across people who actually do not bear any ill will to who they thought were attacking them or who they thought were their um, violators because they understand or they have been able to put it in the context that uh, those were unnatural circumstances and the times were such that people were driven by this um, complete hatred against each other for various reasons so a lot of uh, hindus I, and i had no so many hindus whose families have suffered during partition but they are the most amicable people they have the, and probably because of their history of living with muslims in lahore or in other parts of pakistan they still are friends with a lot of muslims in india they find some kind of uh, you know some kind of commonality of language or shared experience in food or whatever so they they, they do not live with this hatred 
there are some people who have this kind of uh, hostility and uh, i have no empirical uh, figures to show how many people are like uh, are hostile and how many are not but people who did have this hostility instead of uh, helping them overcome this or helping them make peace with this this whole rss uh, propaganda machinery uh, fished in this you know to use this uh, proverb that they were fishing in these troubled waters and they kind of continued to fan it and project muslims perpetually as a enemy forever uh, and a historic enemy who was the enemy much before partition through uh, 8 to 9 centuries you know starting the 10th century onwards they were they became the enemies in retrospect so this has fueled this uh, both distrust and dislike then the when the exodus of kashmiri pandits happened it just added to this narrative the irony is a uh, majority of people who keep talking about kashmiri pandits actually do not know any kashmiri pandits they have no exposure to them they have no experience of uh, what happened in kashmir or what the situation was in kashmir when the pandits left and a lot of pandits uh, kashmiri pandits also uh, you know it's a divided house not all of them uh, are hostile to muslims a lot of them you know they still have fond memories of their living with their muslim neighbor yeah, the bonding is still there right mm-hmm. it's still like that so i think this is a very deliberate project it has really nothing to do with your instincts or your natural thinking it's a it's it's a project which has been uh constructed in a manner to you know persuade or uh misguide people so i would say that they have been misguided to believe that muslims are permanently uh, your enemies so the new generation that uh, would not have witnessed many of the frightening events but would have only heard them heard about them and yet they are forced to carry you no know, carry this burden of uh, kind of always proving that they are secular you talking about muslims actually we can talk about both muslims and hindus see uh, muslims the uh, current generation people like me uh, or uh, my uh, let's say my uh, nieces they obviously have no experience of violence so they have uh, they don't have the fear or that uh, uh, nervousness that uh, people of my father's generation and to some extent maybe i i mean i actually i i don't have the fear but a lot of people in my generation had seen But then, but even then, you know, the, many times they are fed on narratives which can stoke some kind of. Uh... No, so I'm coming to the current generation. I'm coming to my nieces and my nephew. So what they are feel, feel uh, facing today is something that I had not faced, and probably my parents also did not face, which is a very vocalized prejudice. So uh, this. this fuels a very different kind of sentiment uh i uh, for instance my niece uh, in her class uh, a few years ago uh, you know this uh, 14th august 15th august pakistan independence day india's independence day there was uh, i think one of them was on the weekend or something i'm forgetting what the situation was but the teacher announced that uh, 
uh, in normal circumstances, they would have celebrated the Independence Day a day early because uh, it was for, it was going to be a, on a Sunday or something, and the school was going to be shut. So, they, but the teacher announced in the class that uh, we will not celebrate it on the 14th. We'll celebrate it on the 16th or something of that sort. So a boy in my uh, niece's class said, but ma'am, uh, 14th is her Independence Day, implying that she is a Pakistani. So the teacher ignored it and she continued with what she was saying. Later when my niece came home and she narrated this, so I was a bit agitated. I said, you must immediately complain to the teacher and you should uh, you know, draw the teacher's attention to anything that you hear. So she said, no, but they always do that. You know, they keep calling me Pakistani. I said, but why are you not complaining about this? So she said, then my friends will also get upset. They'll say, oh, why are you complaining? Because her fear was because she didn't have Muslim friends. All her friends were uh, Hindu girls. So she thought that if she complains against another Hindu person who is not her friend in any case, but she just felt that the, her friends will feel that why are you making a big deal about it? What's a big deal? Uh, so, you know, this sort of open prejudice I never faced. So my, my uh, background or my mental makeup has been different from my parents. And this current generation, they have their own baggage or their own burden to carry, which is different. Yeah, I remember you also mentioned in your book about, uh, I think, a cousin sister of yours, you know, who starts wearing uh, the burqa or yes. which. Huh? Uh, so uh, I uh, see again, uh, her problem is not the prejudice that she faces. Her problem was that uh, there is no uh, sensitivity towards Muslim interests or even festivals. So uh, examination is scheduled on Bakhreed. Which is the second most uh, important festival in, uh, Muslim, you know, for Muslims after the Ramzan Eid, which just happened uh, two weeks or uh, last week. So the, uh, it is, uh, you know, when the uh, timetable is scheduled or, or made, or when uh, entrance tests are uh, planned, they don't take into account when the festival would be. It's understandable that they can't figure out when Eid would be because even Muslims are stupid. They keep going by uh, the sighting of moon instead of just going by the calendar. But Bakrid actually uh, is predetermined. You know, it, it usually happens on the calendar date because it's not, it doesn't depend entirely on the sighting of the moon. Uh, it, it coincides with uh, the performance of Hajj. So people know when it is going to be. So uh, dates can be uh, decided well in advance uh, for the Bakri. But even that doesn't happen. So uh, then, you know, in uh, schools, uh, a lot of schools now, they have uh, prayers like Gaizri Mantra, and they insist that it is not a Hindu prayer. In fact, a lot of people have told me also that uh, it is not a Hindu prayer. So what is your objection to it? But a lot of Muslims believe that it's a Hindu prayer. And actually, to be honest, I also think it is a Hindu prayer because if it was not a Hindu prayer, it would have been part of your mainstream schools also everywhere. But when I was growing up, uh, I never recited this and nobody I knew recited it. Only uh, my Hindu friends would recite it. Even Sikh friends did not recite it or know it by heart. So obviously, religion has a role to play in this. But now it is being passed off as 
a non-Hindu prayer, which is the Indian uh, prayer. So why can't you recite it? But a lot of kids do recite it. Even my nieces, they recite it and they know it by heart. But uh, the people who are objecting to this, Muslims who are objecting to this, they they find this that this is an encroachment on their religion. This is an encroachment on their faith. Uh, so when when these prejudices they are persisting uh, the sense of fear is also not leaving there's this continuing uh, loss of identity so then in such a scenario like what hope what hope do we give to the youths what is or like uh, where do we go from here what is it leading us to you know i'm an extremely optimist person and i feel that as long as even one person is like me or optimist about the future, we should not lose hope. So my prescription for uh, you know moving forward is that that we should start talking to one another. We should start asking questions of one another. If we have misgivings about the other person, just ask that person. Maybe the uh, maybe Muslims are crooks and maybe they are liars and maybe they are pretenders and they say something about the religion when deep down they believe something else. But at least ask. If you ask, then you can find out this is what a Muslim thinks or feels. Then you can judge. You can verify it with documents or history books or whatever and you can judge whether the person is lying or not lying. I'll just give you a small example. I have quoted these so many uh, riots, post-partition riots. Uh, I had heard about a lot of them colloquially, but when I started researching, I realized everything is available now and everything is available online. And these are, you know, verified statistics, data available on various websites, and, uh, uh, newspapers, magazines. They have done reports on this. So I have quoted these sources and I was so amazed that when so much of information is available at a click of a mouse. So what kind of statistics you are referring to? No, about when the riot happened, who were who were the instigators. Oh, uh, okay. okay. Mm. So all of this is available online. I mean, you just type it and you find old newspaper articles, you find clippings, you find everything. You find Government of India statistics. Uh, you go to the Home Ministry website, you find their statistics. You go to their annual reports, you find... So everything is there. It's not that these are matters of conjectures or these are matters of perception. These figures, uh, the what action was taken, which committee was formed when, who headed which inquiry committee, what happened to the inquiry committee, everything is available now. And thanks to internet, it's available online. So uh, if you want, you can find accurate or correct information by just you know doing running a Google search. So it's not so difficult to find the facts or the truth. So if you are just, if you retain your curiosity, if you just ask a question, if you have a misgiving about a person, uh, you can get to the truth. And forget even asking question. If you have a, let's say, a, if a Hindu person interacts with a Muslim, uh, has a Muslim friend, he or she will realize that they're actually uh, you know, they, they don't, they're not like Draculas. They don't have horns on their head or they are not blood-fucking people. They are regular people. Maybe some of them are extremely conservative. Maybe some of them are radical. Maybe some of them do not like Hindus. And maybe some of them want to stick to their own types. Uh, too bad for them. 
it's it's their loss but at least if you reach out if you are talking to them you may just open your own mind but do you think that much of this this kind of thought process that has uh, shaped or uh, taken shape over the years has been largely i mean who we hold responsible it is like uh, no it's we, we we always will hear or say that it is a systemic systemic failure of our leadership political leadership then it is this failure of our administration but if if we were to kind of pinpoint you know to understand it better and also perhaps resolve these issues faster and more amicably so where would we actually put our finger on i have actually put the finger uh, very directly in my book and i have put the finger on these uh, the hindu ideologues uh, like veer Sa- not veer Savarkar and Vinayak Savarkar and uh, uh, Golwarkar, Hegrewar—you know, people who were the uh, the the propounders of this uh, theory of Hindu exclusivism. They I, and they because they wanted to create this body uh, of uh, people uh, which who could restore their Hindu pride. Uh, they had to find an enemy because. Uh, unless you have somebody you can target uh, you can't unite your own people i mean you unite against a common enemy so uh, because they needed a common enemy for this sort of a unity uh, muslims appeared to be uh, a easy target uh, because they were at that particular point they were weak they were largely illiterate uh, and they had just suffered this huge loss of power after 1857 so they they realize that this long uh, history of uh, eight 78 centuries uh, where the muslim uh, were the rulers is very fertile ground to manufacture stories of uh, atrocities uh, stories of uh, uh, cruelty and i i'm not denying that cruelty wouldn't have happened but see if you're talking about eight centuries long uh, reign obviously there would be incidents of cruelty obviously there would be incident of desecration of temples there would be lot of uh, things which were not uh, good uh, or which were which cannot stand scrutiny in our present times in our uh, you know given our present values of human rights uh, obviously all of that would have happened because 8 8 9 centuries is a long time not all rulers not all uh, subedars or you know administrators or uh, commanders or uh, they would be honorable so so the point is you have to see things in context uh, if you are taking uh, some event or something that had happened in uh, the 12th century and you put it to test by today's uh, value system or constitutional value system it won't you know it won't stand scrutiny uh, so you have to see your history in a context Uh, so i think the blame has to be pinned there because they took things out of context exaggerated a lot of things uh, isolated a lot of incidents which were a consequence of something that had happened at that time and presented a picture of uh, a large group of people as somebody permanently in hostility with the hindus 
So you start, you started with this, you know, the strong narrative of your personal story and where your father kind of suffers this erosion of confidence uh, during the mob attack on your house. And then uh, by the time we reach the end of the book, you're also ending on a positive note with the hope that uh, you see emerging from the Shaheen Bagh protests, because you say that that's the assertion of Muslim rights. And it is... Uh, it is kind of a, a part of a new society, maybe a societal change that is coming about. So what else do you think will be able to bring about, uh, say, a positive change? Like, uh, like I don't know, a, a good education, better jobs, because all these committee reports that have come and you've quoted all the statistics, which, uh, which have actually busted a lot of myths also. Uh, you know, I think Shaheen Bagh has a lot of uh, lessons. The uh, assertion of Muslim uh, rights or, you know, a Muslim asserting uh, her right in India is one part of it. The, uh, the other very good thing that has, uh, that it showed was, uh, though it was started by Muslim women and in, a, in many places was led by Muslims, uh, but a lot of non-Muslims had joined their hands with Muslims. A lot of, you know, the protests when they were, when they sprung all across India, it was not Muslim specific protests. Uh, there were so many people across age uh, divide, across economic divide, uh, religious divide, who were talking in one voice. And I feel uh, this sort of a pushback uh, has, has a lot of hope for all of us. You know, it gives uh, you the sense that uh, there is a huge number of uh, Indian population which does not believe in propaganda uh, that has been fed over the years and which believes that uh, people, individuals can be good or bad, but you cannot use one or two individuals as a marker for the entire community. So I think this was a very positive uh development that happened. Uh, everything that you have said, education, employment, um, all of this will help in mainstreaming of Muslims. And if Muslims are in the, you know, if there are more Muslims in the mainstream, you will get to see them more. And you probably will not, you know, get to that stage and when suddenly you see a Muslim and you say, oh, but you don't look like a Muslim. Or suddenly you see a Muslim and you say, oh, uh, just fits the stereotype of a burqa or a hijab or whatever. So if there are more, and this is nothing new, uh, in our Indian small towns, uh, I, I don't know where which uh, where you grew up, but in Indian small towns, uh, Muslims and Hindus, they have coexisted for, for centuries. Uh, you know, it was very natural to see a Muslim woman in a burqa moving around and nobody would give a second glance. Uh, just as it was very natural to see a Hindu woman, uh, you know, with a, with Sindhur and Bindi and sometimes with a Ghungad. So these have been part of our small town landscape for such a long time that when uh, this division or suddenly, you know, you using these stereotypes to mark out a community, it cannot be a natural thing. It has to be an artificial thing because this has been part of our society for years and years. 
the sight of a muslim man a bearded man with a skull cap uh, and a henard henard uh, beard it has been part of our uh, society for so I was about to sense. say that. Yeah, I was about to say that. Like there was a time when I think both the communities, the Hindus and the Muslims, they really existed, coexisted, uh, very beautifully in harmony. But uh, you know, the same acceptance is uh, now missing. Yes, because there's so much of vilification has happened now. Now uh, people actually, uh, because you have drilled this in their heads so much. They fear a ordinary Muslim. I mean, I have come across uh, very nice, uh, amicable Hindu people who say that they're scared when they see a Muslim person, a Muslim man. They get, they feel uh, some sort of a fear that is he a terrorist? Now, this cannot be a natural thing that has happened. No, it has to be something which has been tutored, which has been put in your head artificially. Because it's like the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, now you see this tablighi jamaat incident which happened last year. Now, why would a normal human being behave in the manner that the media was showing? Why would a person who is COVID positive in an isolation ward suddenly flash himself at a nurse? Why would he do that? I mean, you if if you have sense, if you are, you know, if you are. Uh, I don't know what word to use, but uh, any average person would know that th- this cannot be true. This is fake news. But uh, not only people believed it, they actually uh, went ahead and started abusing them. Uh, you know, stories that a Muslim vegetable vendor, he's spitting on his vegetables and selling. Why, why would he do that? I mean, he wants to make a living. He's coming to sell his vegetables. Why would... He do something like this: spit on the vegetable and sell. So videos were circulated, and then people said, "No, no, we'll boycott the Muslim vegetable vendors. We will not allow them." So these are the kind of things. Take this whole uh, the cow business, the cow slaughter thing. Now, uh, cow slaughter has been banned in large part of India, and it is nothing new. It has been banned for you know by law. It has. Been banned. Uh, I think post independence, many states had uh, restrictions on cow slaughter. But now, with all this lynching happening, why would a Muslim man still slaughter a cow and carry the cow meat with him? I mean, he has to be completely crazy to do something like this, imperil his life uh, in this manner. Mm. So, in such a vitiated atmosphere, like really, I really want to go back. From where will our hope stem? You know, like uh, where where does the I, I I'm more particularly focused on the new generation, the younger generation. Where does that young Muslim adult stand today? I think for the from the Muslims' perspective, they have to really focus on getting the right kind of education. Uh, one of the problems uh, with Muslims and education is that a, a lot of them they don't know what kind of education they need to actually get you know, sensible jobs. Uh, you know the entire employment sector has changed now. So a, a Muslim, uh, a lot of Muslims they still do not understand that just doing your uh, BA or history honors or you know uh, BCom honors will not get you 
uh, a sensible or appropriate job that you think you should get because of all these years of education because this education really has no place in today's and in the next 5 years it will really have no place in the um, job market this are, there are no jobs which a person with a just a ordinary bcom or a mcom or a course like bba uh, can get i mean what does what will what kind of a job will a bba person get a person with bachelor of business administration get so a lot of muslims are still trying uh, doing these sort of uh, you know, those who have access to higher education even they are sticking to these kind of traditional courses uh, but this is it this itself is a minority uh the majority really doesn't have access to higher uh, higher education they are school dropouts 10th dropout 12th dropout so they get into these technical courses iti type courses uh, you know mechanics and uh, repair work and all that so this is the biggest challenge unless they get into uh, the education which gives them reg- proper jobs uh, or jobs which satisfies their aspirations they will not be the part of the mainstream they can, cannot join the mainstream which with because the mainstream employment industry is moving really rapidly in a very different direction so these people will always be left behind this will fuel more frustration because they re- feel that we have spent so many years studying spent so much money on our education and we are still not getting the jobs this also fuels a sense of victimization they feel that oh i am being discriminated against but the truth is they are not dis- when they are not getting the appro- appropriate job they are not being discriminated they just do not have the adequate qualification for that particular job or whatever they are looking for so i think education is the biggest challenge and it has to start with really good quality schools and uh, like mainstream schools <coughs> uh the public schools they have career counseling they start very early they start with class 8 onwards they start advising the children that what is uh, what will get you what sort of employment uh, or what careers you can look at i sort think this sort of counseling should start in the schools which a lot of muslims have access to so whether they are schools in muslim dominated areas or whether they are schools uh, where a large number of muslim students go so at least they are better advised to the kind of education they should pursue the higher education they should pursue and once they reach this stage then higher education should be made easy for them because not everybody can get into the government uh, subsidized universities even regular people uh, non muslims do not get there so they have to get into the private universities which we have so many now and a lot of them are very good but they're ex- ex- sobitantly um, i would say priced the fee structure is such uh, sorry the fee structure is such that a uh, lot of muslims cannot afford it so, i think i think we also uh, i mean would you agree like if i say that there also has to be a much larger public engagement and not only from the muslim community from also the uh, non muslim communities to kind of you know uh, understand and help islam islam evolve in india i do not know like how islam evolves in india how islam evolves in the rest of the world 
Uh, you mean evolve? When you're talking of evolve, you're talking of future, or you're talking future? Of the past? No, no, I'm talking of future. See, as a religion, uh, world over, uh, religions are taking a bit of a backseat, uh, except for a few developing countries and India being one of them, where uh, the younger generation is as religious as their parents were. But worldwide, the younger generation is slightly more laid back towards religion uh, as compared to their previous generation. Maybe this is uh, going to be our future as well uh, going forward, that people would become a little more, uh, uh, you know, they'll step back from a very ritualized religion which dictates every uh, minute of your life. Uh, maybe something like that will happen. And if that happens, I think that would be the greatest uh, unifying force because if everybody steps back from their religious practice uh, dogmas, then they can find, you know, new meeting grounds, new grounds of engagement with one another, which could be either economics or it could be, you know, social sciences or whatever. So uh, I think the evolution of Islam in India uh, will also depend upon the evolution of other religions in India. If everybody else continues to cling to their faith and, uh, you know, our public spaces continue to remain as religious as they are today, uh, where, you know, even sensible people are talking about the benefits of cow urine and benefits of cow dung and, uh, as a treatment for COVID. So if, if this sort of a, uh, you know, religiosity continues to invade our public spaces, then the Muslims will also be, you know, they're part of the society. So they will also be uh, clinging on to their uh, dogmas and clinging on to their superstitions and age-old practices. Yeah, but I do. I do see the point because I feel that, you know, no matter like... Uh, uh, what to say, like how much distance you cover in life in terms of your education, in terms of money, in terms of your status, in terms of privilege. But if you are always uh, kind of bracketed, then uh, and you're, if you're always judged, then of course uh, it will continue to have a very devastating uh, impact on society, right? Yes, because if you're constantly judged, then you're constantly on trial. And that's not a good feeling. So I uh, really, you know, I mean, uh, even while reading your book, I was thinking like how in this this whole culture of Islamophobia, the, the mind keeps going back to the same point, you know, what gives you hope and how you give hope to others. As I mentioned, um, what gives me hope is uh, this... Uh, last two years that I have seen a pushback by young Muslims in not only uh, trying to strike a conversation with uh, non-Muslim people, whether it's on social media, whether it's on Twitter, you know, all these hashtags, we started talk to a Muslim or uh, Muslim are not terrorist or whatever. So uh, this uh, outreach, I think, uh, is very good. And I think it has had some sort of an impact on at least some people, whoever they were able to reach out to. Uh, there, there is some conversation happening and at least I see it on my timeline, uh, despite uh, some amount of hatred as well. 
but uh, this is uh, a good thing which gives me hope and plus the fact that uh, uh, so many uh, people who are not muslims uh, they they are not uh, you know they are not victim of propaganda they have uh, the ability to see through propaganda uh, and this can be seen by the reaction that my book has got the reviews that i have got and um, reviews written by non muslim people who have found the book not only uh, interesting but uh, also something which uh, has uh, helped them uh, probably uh, understand islam better and understand muslims better so uh, i think that that's a very good thing and that's something which i draw a lot of hope from and a lot of uh, comfort from yeah so on that positive note that uh, like as you said the conversations should con- continue so we will call it a wrap gazala and i i really thank you for joining us in this conversation for the hindu podcast and my best wishes to you for your book thank you so much thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you thank you for listening to the hindu on books You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 